the wall. But um, so we kind of clustered what are the largest financial movements in the world. So think of things like interest rate derivatives, which is like a $424 trillion markets, and then pair it down to all the, let's call them. Welcome everybody to the Strategy Show. I'm your host, Simon Severino. Our guest today is the managing partner of Sustane Capital, a venture fund focused on investments in technologies for finance, law, and government. His current book project is called Streaming Money, and it is about the decentralized flows of the future. Welcome everybody, Christian Kameer. Hey, good morning or good evening. Great to have you here. Where are you right now? In Newport Beach, California. It's All 8 right. And how is it going there? Oh, we can't complain. I mean, uh, I never spend a day away from the office during these entire crazy times, but that's mainly because I see the ocean from the office. <laughs> you have brought three wonderful topics with us that we will be disrupted if we are the middleman in our business model, that we will be disrupted if we maintain a platform, and that if we want to survive, we should check the blockchain-based solutions. I am super pumped to go through these three very relevant topics with you. But first, what are you currently creating? Um, so yeah, we're raising funds for our second fund. Our first fund was comprised of our own investments, where we basically built our thesis. We are a very thesis-driven fund, and we take this topic very serious, as in uh, we're using the scientific method to investing, meaning we start with observation, collect data, and then build a thesis around where this technology will be in five to 10 years from now, which is our investment horizon. And so now we feel pretty comfortable that we have some good ideas on where money technologies are going, value transfer technologies are going, identity solutions will be going. And those are the really big topics of our time right now. And it's very crucial that we get this right. And a lot of people will read a lot of different information about these topics. So specifically stuff like CBDCs, central bank digital currencies in, in terms of new monies or identity management solutions, information coming out of China. And unfortunately, um, as you know, reality doesn't have an advertising budget. So part of my mission has always been to get information out there for peer review to get my thinking reviewed. And so typically I will publish some of the kind of tidbits on our investment uh, strategy on, on Forbes or Hacker Noon. And then recently we're helping out some of the Ivy schools developing their new programs for, for the space because we're, we're about uh, to basically enter for the first time really the internet area. What I mean by that is um, when I sold my last company in, in 2008, the one thing that stood out to me is that um, we never really built the World Wide Web. What I mean by that is right now the, the internet or World Wide Web is controlled by very few companies for internet access and for even fewer companies for eyeball control. And that's really a thing that wasn't the, in, in, uh, the initial intention of the creators that made some of these innovations possible. So if you think about Tim Berners-Lee and Surf, their idea was really that we connect brains, that we connect the knowledge of all humans and then better ourselves. And that really hasn't happened. That's a topic I'm super excited and, and passionate about, as you can tell. 
and that I started writing about 12 years ago. So eventually this kind of canonized in the latest project that my partner and I are working on, on the topic of money. And from an investor's perspective to bring this full circle, it's a good day when the solutions that you are investing in address all the money in the world as a starting point. And that's the simplest technology, right? I am so passionate about the scientific method. And you said you use the scientific method to build thesis and measure and, and, and create your funds. So I, I want to know more about the details of how you do it. Because when, when I read for the first time 17 years ago, I think it's, it, it's there, Karl Popper, conjectures and refutations. That was the moment when I, I fell in love with this idea. And now that we are sprint coaches, so business coaches, we use the scientific method every week because we have always a hypothesis-driven growth. And we have always three metrics that we measure every seven days. And so I know how to do that when growing a business. But how do you use that in, in assessing investment opportunities? Right. So we take a very high level macro approach. So first of all, what we did, and I wish I could show you my wall, but um, so we kind of clustered what are the largest financial movements in the world. So think of things like interest rate derivatives, which is like a $424 trillion markets, and then pair it down to all the, let's call them smaller categories. Think about mortgages and HELOC and payment systems. So we, we first sketched out the big, let's call them clusters of those. And then we saw how at scale these clusters could be disrupted because there's one kind of bigger theme here in, in terms of technology development, which is that of we're moving from a database area to a decentralized software area. I actually don't use the term blockchain for this um, paradigm as much anymore because there's actually different uh, software solutions within that space are probably more suitable, such as um, acyclic uh, graphs and things of that nature that most people still haven't heard about. But a lot of people will heard about blockchain, obviously, um, and the topic of Bitcoin. But what Bitcoin really did is introduce a whole new paradigm. And that's the paradigm of that you don't have to have a centralized organization that has control of data. And that's where we are today. So we came from an area where if to Put it really high level if you if you were human you would live in a small tribe and that was true for hundreds of thousands of years right and all of your kind of obligations you would keep in your wetware would keep a note of it in your brain and if someone did something for you it was kind of expected that um he would return the quote-unquote favor at some point in time so it worked all on social contracts and really this is how societies work still today right a lot of these social contracts eventually got formalized, but um, the principle is still the same. So the point here being, eventually we moved to technologies that made these type of obligations easier to track off. So we, we started carving sticks and then eventually we invented paper and created ledgers. And then kind of very recently in human history in the 1960s, we created databases. So we came from this paper-based uh, commercial activity system to a database system. And then what happened, we introduced networks to it. And then eventually we introduced, on top of the networks, we uh, introduced the internet. So what this did though is it, is it exposed this data to a whole new set of 
danger, so to speak, right? So now you can pretty much buy any set of data on the World Wide Web or what most people refer to as Darknet. That's actually the World Wide Web. <laughs> the other thing is the commercial web that you're seeing when you're Googling something. And um, database uh, technologies are super vulnerable. You cannot protect the database. So the point here being is if you are in charge and you being the company, you're in charge of either personal identifiable data, PIDs, and or you're in charge of um, storing asset information, such as stock information or real estate information and so forth. And that's how 97% of all value is being tracked today in databases. 97% of all money, quote unquote, exists only in databases. So this is highly vulnerable. And we need to reverse this paradigm to where you get custody over this data solely. And we're seeing this all over the world. We're seeing it both on the technology side. We also see law enforcement and regulators stepping in and protecting this data from abuse. So that comes down to things um, as obvious as GDPR or something more nuanced, where um, custodians have a lot of rights that create a lot of overhead. As in, if you, let's say, a bank right now, you have to go through a lot of regula regulatory overhead to actually be able to custody other people's funds, right? The, the reason being is you're a custodian of these funds. So the larger point here being is if, um, to, to summarize it with a very, very simple example, we have the technologies to transfer values for some time now, for at least a decade, but we're still treating most value transfer like we treat postage. And it's the equivalent of you having, put in, having to put a stamp on every email. And so the larger innovation here is that we do away with the stamp and we do away with the people that issue these stamps because really value transfer should be as easy as sending an email. But we need to reverse the paradigm of the current internet infrastructure, which a lot of people call Web 3.0 and I personally call really Web 1.0 because in my mind, we never completed the initial stack, which is a decentralized stack. Okay, That was probably more than what you wanted to know right now, but it will also tell you uh, it's a very, very large topic, but in principle, the takeaway should be as we're reversing the paradigm of the current internet structure and that um, carries with it the reversal of the paradigm, how we transfer value. I just invested in a company near you. It's called Square because I think that they might disrupt what banking is today because banking is maybe 70% being the middleman for a transaction that doesn't need middlemen anymore. Is this what you mean by if we have a business model where we are the middleman, uh, we should consider, consider innovating it? Well, Square still is the middleman itself. I mean, they are yet another middleman. So true peer-to-peer -peer value transfer happens obviously without middlemen. You wouldn't be able to invest into a, scare, a square and a real peer-to-peer -peer solution. So what, what you're looking for is actually different business models altogether, which is a much larger topic that I can talk an hour about. But the principle here is um, that whenever you can transfer something without a middleman, you should expect in due time to do this without a middleman. That, by the way, doesn't mean that all of these will go away because think about things like um, storing your money. Um, in principle, you could take out all your money from, from your checking account, put it under your mattress in, in printed cash, so to speak. Most people wouldn't do that, wouldn't feel comfortable. So with new technologies, you will in principle be able to do this in a digital form. However, 
a lot of people will still not feel comfortable either with the technology or just with their own user behavior of having access to all of their funds at all times, right? So it, the, the point here being is the functions will shift, but it, it will also shift towards, I wouldn't call it decentralization, uh, uh, but it will shift to a model where you will need way fewer middlemen, as in the, the example here that we commonly use is, how many dispatchers do you need once you have one Uber app? You don't need any, right? Because the, the Uber app takes care of all the dispatchers in the world. And so that's how you can think of a lot of functions in current financial systems. So what is the, the decentralized flow and who should be aware that they are right now the middleman and how can they handle it? Well, so smack dab in the middle of all of this innovation is uh, everybody who has been calling themselves fintech before there was uh, a decentralized software solution. Because a lot of these quote unquote fintech solutions of the past, they really have been window dressing solutions to the legacy financial systems. If you think of things like uh, PayPal, right? Why does it take 24 hours to get your money out of PayPal? Because they are really just an interface to the legacy banks. And this holds true for a lot of these companies. Like you mentioned Square earlier, albeit the CEO has a very enlightened approach to this topic, but he is still married to an old business model, right? And unless and if they invent something that is radically different from a business model perspective, they're going to have a hard time still creating alpha within that space. So the, the easiest thing to transfer really online, quote unquote, is money. Right? So that's the simplest product. Every other product um, that is an, a right or an asset, you want to differentiate between the two, requires some PID. So if I want to sell you a house, but I want to sell you a car, I first have to authenticate myself as the rightful owner, and then there has to be some transfer mechanism that identifies you as the new owner. And the most useful metaphor here, since we are short on time, is the, the metaphor of a digital of a digital vending machine. So if you approach a vending machine, you take out, let's say, a coin, you, you push in the coin and you push a button and you get your candy or something else. So we now, with decentralized software solution, have the equivalent of that in software. And that doesn't mean that all these rights and assets will be available right away because all the value and all the changes that you need to see in the world occur on the onboarding part is how do you get this into the digital vending machine? So if you want to transfer, let's say, a car, how do you get all the other participants like the DMV and uh, the original manufacturer of that car to actually comply with, with these new standards, right? Uh, and this will take a lot of time. And that's from our perspective, what, what we are focusing on. What, what's the timeline for these innovations to come about? With the things that are digitally native already be, being the easiest, and that's why people are so fixated on cryptocurrencies because they're digitally native. They're already super liquid. You, you can buy them for fiat, and then you can move them around in, in seconds mostly unless you're on, on the slow chain. But the larger point here being is there is unlimited opportunities for companies right now that are willing to disrupt themselves. And that doesn't mean that they have to change overnight. That just have to uh, has to mean that they realize that eventually if you're a rent-seeking middleman, 
um, whose business is it to store information and the information could be personal identifiable data, the information could be rights to an asset or, um, or otherwise a legal rights of sorts, you will eventually be disrupted. So just prepare to be disrupted, see what is coming. And uh, again, I mean, we can make a million examples of those. Just think about your current database that you're maintaining, and there's probably not a listener out there who hasn't some form of database that they're using for their business. Think about the data that you're storing in your database and how can you make this available to um, a larger audience, to a larger context in a more useful fashion? Who are the actual rights holder, right? So there's enormous changes coming in that particular space. Wonderful, super relevant insights. And I'm also looking forward to your next one, which is we will also be disrupted if we just maintain a platform. But before we go there, let's pass through the strategy award. If you could pick only one person right now who is pioneering, when everybody is digging, this person is digging and they're doing the right thing from your perspective. Who is this one person? Oh, yeah, that's a super hard question. I mean, I'm kind of leaning towards going to the usual suspect here, which would be Elon Musk. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I tend to not be, I tend to not to look to people specifically, right? Um, I look to people for their particular skill set, right? As in people think about different topics differently than me, and that's what I look for. And actually, to me, the most useful thing is actually get, get a team of people from entirely diverse backgrounds. It's way more interesting and way more useful, in my opinion. You want to make your sales more repeatable and reliable? Do you want to have less volatility and more growth in your revenue per month? At Strategy Sprints, we do only one thing, strategy and sprints. Strategy means having more revenue through a better offer. And sprints means having more energy in your team every week. Check out if your ROI is as high as it is for most service-based and online businesses and startups we work with, which is over 100%. You can see it in just 15 minutes by going to strategysprints.com slash sales and completing our online exercise to know what your ROI would be with our accelerator program. We are ready to sprint. Are you? I'm glad that you did because uh, after my first in investment was Square, the second was Tesla. So I'm back, back on track. Now, the second CEO tip, uh, you will be disrupted if you maintain a platform, can you unpack that? Sure, yeah. So a lot of people still pitch us on, on platform plays, which is obviously was kind of the, the overriding paradigm for at least a decade, maybe two decades at, at this point in time, right? Where you are the one that facilitate transactions within a particular ecosystem. Um, we're already seeing these models being disrupted. So the, uh, I mentioned Uber earlier. So we already see things, and, and Uber is a typical example of a platform, right? So you, you join this platform as a driver, you join this platform as a user, and we already see decentralized models of that. So there's already um, a city in Canada where they actually outlawed Uber, I believe, and there's a decentralized version of Uber where the participants and the actual um, right providers own 
that particular system. So there's no platform. There is just members that freely come together and join this particular system, this particular network. So in this sense, it's the pure peer-to-peer -peer sharing economy in this original sense, because a lot of examples of the legacy sharing economy, like we understand this today, what they are really doing as far as like, I'm a provider of a house or a ride share for that matter. I share a lot of my profits with the provider of that platform. So we will see a lot of these platforms being disrupted by networks. And quite honestly, uh, we are really looking for companies that specifically go after platforms in that sense, because th there's a saying in, in VC and startup, your profit is my opportunity, right? And in that sense, a lot of these middlemen that assess a fee for connecting participants on, on that platform will see themselves disrupted. And so here the challenge is always the same. You need to create a new business model that still provides something that people are willing to, to share value with you, but that's not in the middle of the transaction. So the larger point being is if you can avoid, and that again, it's not an overnight thing, but if you can avoid being part of that transaction, that's the best case scenario. So what we invest in is pure technologies. So we're talking about, uh, we're talking on over a system right now called voice over IP or SIP specifically, right? It's a protocol that you and I don't pay for, right? It's, if this was a legacy phone carrier some 20 years ago, we would be paying a certain amount every minute. Every metered minute we will pay for that. And so now we might use an, an additional software layer and application like the one that we're using now. And uh, if it has some premium features, we are willing to pay a small subscription fee for it. Let's call it 10 or $20, right? And we see a lot of those and they provide a lot of value. So think about these models. They will be available to whole other systems out there that call themselves platforms right now. And quite honestly, in my opinion, this should have been the case always. I mean, peer-to-peer -peer solutions at the end of the day is what made the World Wide Web possible, right? All, all the server technology that you're using, not all of them, but uh, there are some that you can pay for, but most of the server technologies that make uh, our conversation possible right now are open source. And here the larger point is there's this law out of um, nature called the law of requisite variety. It's uh, simplified put, it's that the most flexible within a given system will eventually always rule the system. And so in software, that's true for open source. And so that's true for the deployment of these technologies as being able to facilitate human commercial activity without being the rent seeking middleman without being a platform provider in that sense. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And so I remember the law of requisite variety by Ross Ashby, who was saying, if you can absorb enough complexity from the other side, so the other side of a product is the market. Can yeah. you ex absorb enough complexity from the user demand? I was thinking of Amazon. Will Amazon be disrupted as a platform and we will share peer to peer? Uh, and I think one one thing that would that would maybe maybe be in Amazon's favor and why, why they would fight the battle, I think, with Grace for the first couple of years is because you have this amazing experience of a curated, a curated experience for you, this very customer-centric way of curating there, but so many platforms who just do not add that value 
they will be the first, I think, to be disrupted according to your model. Like if you're just paying because they own the entrance. Yeah. I mean, Amazon is a complex example. I mean, you you want to split this in at least two pieces. I mean, Amazon's most profitable business part is AWS, Amazon Web Services. You probably know that. And there's a bunch of startups right now that are trying to address that particular business model. So they offer things like decentralized storage, decentralized bandwidth, decentralized computation power. But this will be a long time to develop, in my opinion. It will take at a minimum five years. The point here being is, that they actually, and they they being Amazon, aggregated a lot of good utility on top of their platform that makes things easier. So there has to be, in our opinion, always three things that you do better as a startup wanting to disrupt an incumbent. So you have to be, let's call it cheaper, you have to be faster, and then you have to be better in some way. And Amazon built a really great mode. And you were referring probably more to the marketplace part, but the, the, the marketplace part kind of obfuscates um, what most people don't realize that Amazon is really a logistics company, right? So they built this enormous logistics apparatus that facilitates the transfer of goods from, from A to B. And then they eventually, by aggregating all these products on there, could identify just having access to that data, what is the most um, valuable product to sell myself, right? And um, you're probably have seen some of those lawsuits in that context where Amazon puts their own clients and their own customers out of business by just becoming um, the, the seller of the products themselves. So that's somewhat questionable. And so we saw that the same, by the way, just recently happened, and that has been a long time co coming with Google, right? Google's right now being sued by the Justice Department um, for the behavior in terms of suppressing other advertising solutions and so forth. And that was quite obvious for a lot of people for a very long time. They put one of my companies out of business 12 years ago doing exactly that. So, But the point there being is, um, as a startup in that space, you can provide this curation without being necessarily the middleman. And the other part to that, and that was kind of in, in our um, pre-discussion here is, a lot of what we look at as content right now is really advertising copy, right? And we need to reverse that model. And the way to reverse this model is to um, claim ownership. So if you're looking at the most obvious example of Google, the initial idea was that of references. The original algorithm for Google was actually called Backrub, and there was a reference to the reference system in academia. Um, that has actually never been implemented. So. We expect this to be implemented in the near future with things such as SSI, which is um, self-sovereign identity, where you claim ownerships. Because you should really be able to filter the World Wide Web for things that is just bot-generated, for things that is obviously spam, which is quite honestly pretty much everything that you see in any type of search engine. And I can include um, Amazon with that, right? So Amazon is a search engine for products, and a lot of what um, most people perceive as curation is not curation. It's, it's just advertising. There, there's a whole um, ecosystem that evolved around this particular model. Just There's a whole ecosystem that uh, uh, evolved around this concept of search engine that we call SEOs and so forth. So that's the real problem. And the larger point here being is, and then I stop talking at this point in time because I can talk about that topic for about two hours nonstop. But the larger point here is, 
that what we expect to see within the next five to 10 years is the reversal of the push model to the pull model. So right now, things are being pushed on you, right? So you perceive to doing a search, but you, you don't, right? You're doing a query against the database. And the, uh, the results of that query are optimized towards whatever the business goal of that particular company is that maintains that particular database. So it could be clicking on an ad or that could be presenting you with a particular product, but it is never, never curated by actual peers. I was thinking that supermarkets do it all the time to scan which products are going better and then creating their own line and putting in there. Do you think it, supermarkets could be uh, disrupted by a peer-to-peer -peer network anytime in the future? Oh, yeah. I mean, we already see the nascent implementations of those. So um, not to go into too much details because there's probably five dozen companies that I could cite. But uh, the one uh, topic that you've probably heard of is farm to table. Right. So it's the idea that you can actually source your produce and otherwise the things that you're eating on a daily basis from a farm that's nearby, because a lot of the foods that we're eating right now, they are being harvested in some other country and then stored somewhere. And there's all this additional overhead that creates more carbon footprint and otherwise misery on the other end by people being exploited. But the larger point here being is, it is a logistics problem, right? So it is the fact that I, as a consumer, have no idea what farms are around me producing, what type of product and how to directly get access to that. So it starts um, in any given point in time of the actual production of this product. And uh, we mapped out an example how these new technologies will play a role with that a long time ago. Well, a long time in technology, that is, about two, three years ago, <laughs> which in technology terms might have might as well be decades ago. Um, so where, uh, think about the example of a vineyard. So uh, a vineyard is producing a certain um, type of bottle count on a pretty consistent basis. Let's call it 100,000 bottles per year for a relatively small vineyard. And then what they do is they fill it and then they sell it to some wholesalers. He puts it into some warehouse and he starts chunking it down, selling it uh, to some grocery stores and so forth and so forth, right? So in, in between this, this particular bottle is gonna be shipped from here to there 15 times before eventually you get to open it. And so, the point here being is all of these things that we're producing today, so that um, refers to wine bottles, that refers to car doors, that refers to pretty much everything that is worth tracking, which is a lot, will be tracked before it's actually being created. Because if you think about the largest markets, which are the commodities markets, those are futures markets, so they rely on the fact that there's demand for a certain product reliably in a certain region at scale. Well, we can now do this with new technologies on the micro level. So coming back to, to the vineyard example, you can imagine where you as the wine producer can create an individual tag. And in our technology, this called it's called a non-fungible token that represents a particular bottle that you as the individual can buy before it's ever being produced. So it's a futures market for an individual product that doesn't 
exist much today. I think there are some nascent examples right now. But the point there being is not only can you sell this product before you ever make it in this future market, you then also, by the virtue of it being tracked in this particular way, can track it along the supply chain. And so we already see solutions that are, well, let's call them blockchain-based. I would usually refer to them as decentralized software, really, because there's other things uh, such as blockchains. But you can think of these individual things being tracked across the supply chain. So why is this important? If you, if you are the recipient of the wine bottle, you should be able, at the point of sale, to actually get this original tag, this original NFT, and within your app, see how was this particular product treated along its supply chain? Was it ever exposed to excessive heat? Was it actually produced where I thought I was going to buy it from, from this particular region and so forth? And so at this point in time, what you will see is a much greater decentralization because um, then it doesn't make sense anymore to actually ship things to centralized warehouses and then carry it to the store if you can own it and buy it directly from the manufacturer. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I saw examples of this from the fabrics field where luxury brands in who, who were producing suits, custom-made suits, and I asked them, how are you going to, to go into the next century? Uh, and, 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 and they pointed me towards this, this kind of, of um, transactions, uh, tokenized transactions, and very transparent transactions for the whole chain of their fabrics. Right. Uh, so this is really interesting. Wow, I could I could talk to you for hours about this. Where can the readers read more about it? Where where do you um, make this public? Your thinking? Yeah. So um, every other month or so, when I get around to it, I publish an article on Forbes, which touches on some of the highlights of our investment thesis. And I oftentimes what I'll do I'll expand on this because Forbes is kind of limiting in the length of, of articles that I can publish there and I'll publish something longer to uh, to a site like Hacker Noon um, but then overall I summarize um, our thinking on the space quite frequently like let's call it every other week or so in in some talks that we're giving someplace and because this is such a fast evolving space right and Unfortunately, as I mentioned, there's a lot of misinformation about this out there and a lot of people still focus on things like cryptocurrencies, which to me, th that's uh, almost not the least interesting part, but it's not as interesting as all the other solutions, specifically like building the World Wide Web for the first time. And that's the larger topic. So yeah, in, in short, the only quote unquote social media I really use <laughs> is LinkedIn. Uh, other than that, uh, Forbes, Hacker Noon, um, we'll, we're in the process of structuring some classes for some, some Ivy League schools at the moment in, in the fintech space that particularly focus on things like uh, money technologies, Web 3.0, supply chain, and a few other topics that are super, super relevant. So yeah, maybe the larger message here is if you read something that was written two years ago about this particular space, is more likely than not outdated, right? <laughs> then also, obviously, <laughs> make make sure that it's it's not like um, not guided in a particular way. I mean, a, a lot of this has is commercial intent, and it's trying to promote certain ideas. The the only reason for me really to pop 
publish anything is to get feedback, right? Because uh, th there was kind of our original discussion. I think that there's an, not enough peer review online. I mean, it, it it doesn't do anything for me if someone likes my article. It's, it's more important if someone takes the time to point out, hey, there's this other thing that you didn't talk about that is being discussed over here. Why don't you take a look at this? Or maybe I see things differently. And these are the kind of dis nuanced discussions that we we should have more and more and we need solutions that facilitate that more and more i mean i want to be able to just filter the web for authentic content at the end of the day wouldn't that be great i mean if you get objective feedback on the products that you want to buy the services that we want to use or your lifestyle your diet and so forth we don't we still don't have that but we have all the technologies in place for that we, we're just not using them correctly okay Lot I absolutely more. agree. And um, before we go to your book, which I'm really interested in, now many people right now are listening to this and they are CEOs of small and medium businesses, uh, somewhat also in, in traditional ways that they feel are shifting, but they don't know exactly where it, 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 it all is shifting. Right. So what's your, what's your maybe hint of what they should do being it related to data or to new technologies is how, how how should they prepare and act yeah i mean it's hard to give a general statement here but i'll i'll give it a try so i i hinted on this pretty strongly earlier the the first um section of, of business that these technologies are going to disrupt are uh, the financial services providers right and um, there's pretty much no business out there that isn't in some shape or form using one of these providers, right? Let's let's call it a credit card provider who's charging them two, three percent um, for transactions that people run through their systems. Uh, in my opinion, this shouldn't have happened um, for decades at this point in time. There is no reason from a technology perspective that these entities are able to extract that type of toll. And we know this for a fact because we can observe that larger corporations um, such as Walmart and so forth, they're already threatening to, uh, to actually use their own currency in their own system, right? And so at this point in time, credit card providers won't be able to, to suck out this particular fee. Uh, that, that's kind of your entry point. Um, look for, in this particular case, for banks that are forward thinking, as in they, they're introducing new technologies that lets you do things such as real-time settlements. Every business should ask about these functions because um, most people don't, as far as consumers, most people don't, don't know that when you swipe your credit card or your debit card, before this amount is settled, it can take weeks, right? So an ACH transaction on the um, on example settles in 90 days. That's crazy, right? And so that's why in, in a lot of businesses, they will just accept cash because it's accepted immediately, it's, it settles immediately. But these are facilities where we have the technologies right now to make this possible. And this is just like one of the first examples. You should look into this kind of forward uh, thinking paradigm of all the businesses uh, that you interact with, that comes to, down to your accountant, uh, to your lawyer and so forth. Those are the first type of industries that are, will be disrupted. So any type of rent-seeking middleman that is not in the business of actually producing something, these are the type of businesses we invest in, right? Where, where they, one system will replace 
100,000 lawyers, right? Where one system will replace a million accountants, right? And all of these functions, as far as the technology is concerned, are readily available today. They are just not widespread adopted. And obviously, the incumbents have no real interest if and until there's an alternative to them that people start to use at scale. And we are still uh, somewhat away from that. But as a business, the best thing you can do right now is ask, like to ask your current provider, okay, ha have you heard of decentralized software solution or blockchain solution? What, what are you working on right now to improve um, the facilities of your business to provide me with faster, cheaper services? And if the answer is we're not looking at this, probably look for someone else because that particular business will likely not be around, right? Super powerful and relevant. Now, my next question, Christian, who should be my next guest? <laughs> so, oh, I, I should have asked this um, b before I told you about him. A, a friend of mine is the CEO of a company that's now called Trade Sun. It's a super interesting company, and he's a super interesting guy. He's actually one of the uh, best powerboat captains in the world and has been for decades. Uh, so, he, uh, like I keep saying, he will give the most interesting man in the world to run for his money. And he looks like a rock star. He has a rock star company and he has a really good head on, a sh on his shoulders. He, he lives down here in, in Del Mar, but he is uh, Irish or British by, by, by um, birth. So you, you will enjoy talking to him. He's a really great guy. Absolutely. One book that, or podcast <laughs> or audio book that, um, that inspired you recently? Um, I really don't have something that's recent. Uh, I'm more a first principles type of guy. I, I tend to read certain books over and over again. And so the one book that I read over and over again, probably about two times a year at least, is Your Deceptive Mind by Professor Stephen Novella. So he teaches, I think, new science at Yale. And it, it sounds boring, but it's it's a scientific guide to critical thinking. So it's called the science is called metacognition. But what it teaches you is observe your own thinking. It teaches you to to um, look out for the own fallacies and thinking that we all have, right? I mean, we run this really old wetware um, with a lot of new software, but the hardware that we're using our, our brains is super old and has a lot of built-in fallacies that we all fall fall for all the time and it's a daily struggle to to not do that and to identify these things right and this book really helps because it puts it really really simple it's, it's to me this is what kindergartners should read before they read uh any other book to, to learn about their own biases of thinking and then uh, as far as this is a non-fiction example as far as fiction examples which few people funny enough have heard of there's this author called daniel suarez he's uh, a writer in um, hard science fiction if if you know that topic so uh, science fiction that is mostly based in things that are uh, real and uh, can actually be done like um, things that are around the corner and he has a couple of really great books out and some of which i read on a frequent basis again like demon which has nothing to do with but like ghosts and demon is it's it's an acronym for a system that runs in the background but it outlines a possible new society and we see a lot of these happening right now and what it does it 
it gives you ideas how to think about the world differently, like big themes, big themes like how, how you run nation states today. We see all the inefficiencies that that brings with it, right? So we, we can't solve global global problems like climate change and so forth if we have nation state thinking. But the larger point here is we, we have this public mind share. This is the most important thing online already, right? So some online groups are bigger than nations at this point in time that, that have a particular interest, have a particular direction, have a particular form of thinking. The only thing that we need to avoid, and that's why I pointed to the critical thinking book first, is to make this a group think, right? So that we start to think in black and whites and superlatives. So to me, the, the two most important things to do is check on a ideally daily basis, how do you think about things, right? And whatever podcast that is that can help you you specifically with that. And so you should expose yourself to diverse sets of information. So the, I listen to a lot of audio tapes, always have. I, I probably listen to at least 20, maybe closer to 40 hours of, of audio every week at, at least. And I produce some of the content that like this where I participate. Um, but it's from a lot of different areas right so um it's it's on money it's on philosophies on, on legal and this is the one thing i think that's most important to realize the the future doesn't belong to tools what i mean by that is um our legacy education system is designed to create tools so we're creating accountants and, and lawyers and these are all we have to see those as artificial disciplines at this point in time they serve the purpose for a short period of time but what we'll need for the future to develop with things like, um, I, I hate to use the term AI because most, most things in that space are really expert uh, engines, but um, they, they, we know, we've seen already in, in the prototype stages, AI that will replace entire disciplines, right? So that will replace all those. So your personal success in life, and this is around the corner, depends on your ability to think interdisciplinary right and unless you, you're solely focused on providing some form of let's call it manual labor of sorts but uh, but if your job is to sit on a desk and, and work with your brain on, on a daily basis right develop an interdisciplinary interest or not even develop most people have an interdisciplinary interest right so um, i was a software developer for a short period of time in the 80s and then studied literature and then went to law school and then I also have a psychology background and, and, and whatnot. But those are all, to me, they're not different disciplines, right? It's, it's like a different way of looking at the same thing, of the same problem, right? Like how economies work. Economies have a quote unquote legal level. They have a psychology level to that. That's why uh, typically when people tell me they're economists, I tell them, well, uh, economists, that, that's a pseudoscience, right? Because if it wasn't, then every economist would be a multimillionaire, obviously, right? <laughs> if, there, if it was a real science, then I could just run the math. And if I learned my science correctly, the outcome would be positive. But we, we can observe that it's not. So the point here being is uh, don't, don't just stick to these particular labels. Um, Create, create your own or ideally like, like don't don't use any I don't try I try not to use any labels I, I don't subscribe to to any of those there's 
certain types of thinking that help you in certain types of scenario and that's it okay you have decided to write a book streaming money right. and uh, i am curious about the decision process first uh, did you did you think of different forms of distribution of your ideas or was it very clear the book is it and then the publisher do you go for traditional publishing houses or or self-published or hybrid okay that, that's a lot of questions world in one so let me unpack that so um personally i have the need to write um it's an internal need that has been with me since i was a little child I, i taught myself reading and writing before entering school and started writing short stories at an early age but the other part of that is um i'm very hung up on on words i, I try to deeply understand words and again that's part of my indoctrination in like classical literature and then also law to some degree and this kind of culminated um after i sold my last startup in 2008 so one thing that i kind of not realized observed i should say is that we really didn't achieve our initial objective of creating a worldwide web that facilitates human flourishing right so that facilitates the connection of brains that's to me that's this is the most important resource and this is how we should be using it and so i started writing an outline and um, just to think about it because it was just a need i felt such a strong urge that this needs to be solved and so i first wrote on my own blog i was uh, blogging before bl uh, it was a term i think we called it vlog or, or something like now was what is vlog i forgot what it's called initially but so i had a blog way, way before that was a, a thing and uh, i started writing an outline on how we could actually achieve that original goal of the world wide web and that, that's at least 12 years ago now and obviously that's a big undertaking right and specifically um because you want this to to and be an outcome that's sustainable right because any large systems have um as a tendency to them that they're going to be centralized at some point in time by by some of the actors so the larger point being is and then now i finally come to to that book is so uh, th this larger outline i've been working on for over a decade and i finally came to the realization that i have to break it down so the, this current book project that me and my my partner are working on um right now is focusing on on money as the language of value. And so the point here being is um, money in our current paradigm is how we facilitate most commercial activity, which is a huge part of um, human social interaction, right? And if you get this right, and we, we have the capacity now, we have the technologies now to get this right, then we make a, either a, a huge um jump in into a future that's that's better for everybody or we go backwards and so um we we're outlining this in i think we have 16 chapters outlined right now that go into details what to look for in terms of money and uh, money is probably the most misunderstood topic on the planet i mean the the sole function of money the sole function is ju just of language right and uh, i I'm I'm writing a parable for for the time being that we might put in the book and it goes something like that. Um, there's three people that look at a at a coconut, and the first person thinks the coconut is worth five dollars. The second person thinks the coconut is worth six euros, and the third person thinks it's twenty pesos. Right? It's the same coconut, and and these 
um, thoughts obviously just happen in those people's head. And what it tells you is this is a sole function of money. And most people, when they hear money, they think of their fiat. The sole function is that of language is the language of value. And uh, this will be enforced when you talk to the coconut seller and realize that the coconut seller has his own language of value. And he wants Satoshis or he wants Somonis. Somonis are a real currency that is used in Tajikistan. And he will tell you, well, it's 5,000 Somonis. So what do you have to do? You have to translate it, right? So larger point here being, so th this translation process, for the most part, you do either subconsciously or you kind of don't have to because you default to something. You default to swiping your credit card and it pays someone in US dollar and that's the default scenario. However, in a decentralized world where um, you buy something directly from someone in another country, what we need is what, what I call a bubble fish. Um, if you read Hitchhiker's Guide Through the Galaxy, you know the bubble fish is this little fish you put into your ear and it just simultaneously translates everything in the language that you understand from every language that it absorbs. And so we expect this to happen for the topic of value transfer specifically. It may take some time, but we're already seeing the beginnings all over the place right now. So back to back to the book. So that, that's one of the concepts that we're trying to explain. Uh, we, we talked to a lot of people. This has been a long-term project that we started quite some time ago. A lot of people that are in the publishing world. We will consider publishing this with a traditional publisher. We talked to a couple of those but we have our own objectives so that we will dictate, so to speak, right? Well, we actually care about this being read. We, we actually care about not that having a certain label as being a New York bestseller and so forth. So that is not important for us. For us, the actual message is important. So uh, we will work with the publisher that will provide us with that audience. And we've been building this audience ourselves and publishers these days expect this too as well but at the end of the day for us it's truly about getting this message out and frankly what could be more important than all the money in the world that people should learn about that is changing so i, I think we just have an advantage of having a really great topic <laughs> absolutely thank you so much for being on the show and sharing all your knowledge and and your journey and all the observations that you're having you have a new fan. I will go to uh, Hacker, Hacker Noon and LinkedIn and try to follow up with your newest thinking and uh, contribute some critical moments there. Thank you so much, Christian, for being here. And please Thank come you. back soon when the book's out. We want to see the book. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a long-term project. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's it's not it's not a fluffy topic, right? <laughs> and, All right. I mean, the largest challenge, as you know, is um, uh, there's a saying. I think it's attributed to Einstein. I would have made it shorter if I'd had more time. Right? If I'd had more time. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you, Christian. Have a great day. Stay you too. safe. Take care. Bye. We all know that working in sprints is better but how do we know what we should work on? You're in luck because we have a 15 minute exercise that will give you complete clarity on where to take your project next. Go to strategysprints.com sales to complete our short exercise and meet one-on-one -on -one with an expert sprint coach to identify your number one bottleneck. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the strategy show. Make sure to like this video below and subscribe 
so that you can stay up to date with every episode of The Strategy Show. Get daily CEO tips from CEOs for CEOs.